0: Welcome to the CSIS Kajit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Liza Keller. In this episode, we look at the 2019 National Defense Authorization Act and discuss Congress's role in shaping U.S. foreign and security policy in the Indo-Pacific. On August 13th, President Trump signed into law the fiscal year 2019 John S. McCain National Defense Authorization Act, or the NDAA. The NDAA is a bill that authorizes spending from the U.S. Congress for the entire U.S. military for the coming fiscal year. While the NDAA is crucial in the foreign policy and defense communities for many reasons, here at Cajut Asia, we're especially interested in the portions of the bill that cover or impact the Indo-Pacific. In practice, the sections of the NDAA that cover Asia in this year's bill feature broad generalities and narrow specifics, just like in many previous editions from Congress in the Obama, Bush, and Clinton, or even Reagan eras. However, there are also several explicit requirements for the Pentagon and Secretary of Defense that could be seen as checks on sudden executive branch actions. For example, the 2019 NDAA specifically prohibits any money to be utilized to reduce U.S. force levels on the Korean Peninsula, below 22,000 members without detailed and in-depth certifications from the Secretary of Defense and consultations with regional allies Japan and South Korea. This directive gives a sense of how the NDAA serves as one congressional tool to shape the policy landscape and direct the Pentagon. You can find a link to the complete NDAA bill for the 2019 fiscal year in the show notes. To unpack details of the law's requirements for a comprehensive China strategy, break down elements of this year's bill, explain the largely bipartisan nature of Asia policy, and share some of the history of congressional involvement in Asia, we turn to two experts. Dr. Michael J. Green, Japan Chair and Senior Vice President for Asia at CSIS, and author of the book, By More Than Providence, Grand Strategy and American Power in the Asia Pacific, since 1783. And Greg Poling, Director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, and fellow with the Southeast Asia Program at CSIS, also joined for the conversation. Mike and Greg also talk about the impact of NDAAs in years past, the Trump administration's overall China and Asia strategy, and Congress's unique role on Taiwan and the South China Sea. At the start of the show, you'll also hear our team take a moment to remember Senator John McCain, who, sadly, passed away shortly before we recorded. I'll turn it over now to the editor of the CSIS Asia Policy blog, Jeffrey Bean, who sat down with Mike and Greg.
1: Good day. My name is Jeffrey Bean. I'm editor of the CSIS Asia Policy Blog, and producer of this podcast. Our our topic for this pod is Congress's role in shaping uh, U.S. foreign and security policy in Asia and the new uh, FY 2019 National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA. Uh, Joining the show to help me unpack these topics are Dr. Michael Green, Japan Chair and Senior Vice President for Asia here at CSIS. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. And Greg Poling, director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative here at CSIS. Greg, welcome back to the pod as well. Thanks, Jeff. Before we get into the heart of our discussion on the NDAA, I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge Senator John McCain, who passed away this past weekend. Uh, The bill we're going to discuss today bears his name. Uh, And his contributions to U.S. national security policy in Asia are massive over the last 30-plus years. Uh, Senator McCain and his family are certainly in our thoughts. Uh, I wanted to ask either of you whether you had a moment or interaction with the senator uh, over the last couple decades that stood out to you that uh, signified his engagement on Asia and his commitment from a U.S. foreign policy and national security perspective.
2: Well, I worked on Senator McCain's 2008 presidential campaign as uh, an advisor on foreign policy on Asia. Um, And then... um, Uh, you know, we at CSIS did two um, outside uh, reviews of Asia strategy, um, which were in the National Defense Authorization Act in the NDAA. um, And uh, they were put in there by Senator McCain principally. So I had to brief him on our results and testify. So I've interacted with him uh, a lot, not as much as I would like to have interacted with him, but enough to really get a flavor for what what a salty, colorful, fun personality he is. I've been under the glare when he wasn't happy, uh, the study we did at CSIS for the Senate uh, and House Armed Services Committees the first time around in 2009 and 10 looked at whether our basing structure, the so-called Guam laydown, dispersing our Marine bases more uh, was a good idea. And McCain, you know, had two pretty simple metrics. Does it cost too much? And he thought it cost too much. And does it make our troops our Marines or sailors, airmen safer and our allies or not? and he was relentless, and it was originally a Pentagon Obama administration plan. We came in uh, under the NDAA to do an independent assessment. We said, you know what, this is the right move. There's uh, more of a uh, requirement in Southeast Asia and the South China Sea coming, um, and we're very heavy in Northeast Asia, um, uh, and uh, and there are a lot of missiles and things in our bases, so for those two reasons, we need to spread out. But it, you had to really convince him, and I testified in front of him once, Um, He liked me. I worked on his campaign and he said, uh, you're going to need a bigger piece of lipstick for this pig than that, Dr. Green, and kind of called me up and we kept working on it. And eventually he came around and supported the strategy, but he made us earn it. I respected him enormously for that. He was funny about it, but he was persistent because he was so focused on plugging uh, the gaps in our security. Nothing made him happier. Than getting outraged and rushing in to fill something that was not right. And in the previous NDAs, which he had a huge hand in, he made sure we were dealing with the South China Sea problem, with basing, with costs. Um, I remember briefing him uh, before he went to Shangri-La, the annual summit of defense ministers in Singapore, in the spring. Uh, and by the way, um, secretaries of defense like Ash Carter. Uh, We're incredibly grateful to John McCain for leading a bipartisan delegation of members of Congress to Shangri-La every year to reinforce what the Secretary of Defense said to his counterparts, which is America is in Asia for the long haul and we're committed. And McCain got together leading members of the Congress on both sides of the aisle to go with him. I briefed him uh, with my friend Kurt Campbell before one of those trips. And we pointed out to him that uh, Taiwan was under a lot of pressure. This This was two years ago from China. And he just on the spot said, I'm going to Taiwan. And he added Taiwan to his trip. He went in, he pushed back against the Chinese. So he loved nothing more than to find some gap or shortcoming in our strategy or policy in the U.S. and to jump into the breach himself and and plug it, which he did in that case. Um, So huge, huge influence um, on our credibility in Asia, our staying power. The good news is he really... um, worked to build a next generation. Uh, Senator Dan Sullivan from Alaska, Joni Ernst from Iowa. Um, and they, I think, uh, really feel that that charge, that mandate. And they're not as senior as John McCain, but I think they're going to step up and try to fill the enormous gap left by his, his sad
3: uh, death. You know, two things in, in my neck of the woods that, that come to mind is CSIS hosted its first South China Sea Conference, which is now in its seventh year, in 2011, and you know, 2011, the Chinese hadn't seized Scarborough Shoal yet. The Chinese hadn't started building islands. Asia wonks cared about the South China Sea. Nobody on the Hill talked much about the South China Sea, even in the administration. It was it was a niche issue, and John McCain took time out to come and give the keynote speech at at the first dinner to a group of, of mainly Asia wonks. He was paying attention to this issue even then. Uh, if you fast forward to late 2015, it was in. Uh, An Armed Services Committee hearing when uh, Harry Harris, then uh, still commander of Pacific Command and and Dave Shear over at the DOD were testifying and John McCain pushed him hard, among others, but he was the first to push him hard on the question of U.S. freedom navigation operations. And that's the first time the press really got a hold of the idea of FONOPS. And now, you know, how often do do you read about FONOPS? It didn't happen before that committee hearing.
1: For those that are tracking foreign policy and security issues but maybe don't have a great sense of what the National Defense Authorization Act does as a, as a tool of Congress, why in layman terms is this important for U.S. policy in the Indo-Pacific?
2: Well, the most important reason is because the NDAA authorizes the spending on our uh, forces and our ammunition and our food and our supplies and our exercises and everything that the U.S. military does around the world, of course, not just in the um, what's now called the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and um, in addition to that, the NDAA um, has added um, corrections to what Congress saw as deficiencies in US defense policy, Republican and Democratic administrations were subjected to this. Uh, This time around, uh, that included uh, a focus on how to organize, not just the Defense Department, but the whole US government to deal with the Chinese competitive challenge in Asia, Um, language um, uh, uh, disinviting China from our annual multinational rimpack exercises in the Pacific because of their coercive behavior in the region. Um, and so there are uh, bits and pieces in this uh, bill every year, uh, every year, but especially this last one, that are correctives to what DOD is doing. Now, the dirty little secret is, very often the Pentagon is very happy to get those. <laughs> and people in the administration are very happy to get them. And sometimes what the Congress does in this legislation is... Um, push forward an agenda that um, doesn't have complete consensus, or maybe there's disagreement between state and DOD. And, you know, the NDAA uh, language in the Obama administration did that on the South China Sea and FONOPS. Um, and it did it this time, too, uh, especially, as you noted, on Korea, because um, the statement by President Trump in Singapore on June 12th, after a meeting with Kim Jong-un, that he would like to get our troops off the Korean Peninsula was a bombshell. And there's no push in the Congress to pull back from Korea. So they put a very deliberate floor uh, under the president of 22,000 troops, um, which I suspect Secretary of Defense Mattis, General Brooks, our command on the Krim Peninsula, probably Secretary Pompeo at State, were all privately quite grateful to get because they did not put the president up to saying that. Um, And uh, the Congress uh, is going to help them deal with the aftermath and make sure we don't precipitously pull back uh, as a result of what the president said.
1: First off, I think it's a real disappointment for those of us that follow Asia issues that we're no longer going to be able to refer to uh, United States Pacific Command as PACOM, and now it's United States Indo-PACOM, which does not sound uh, nearly as cool. But uh, after reviewing the last couple uh, NDAs, going back to the first term of the Obama administration, the congressional uh, submitments for the uh, NDAs, I I noticed that this statement that you referenced, Mike, with respect to uh, China strategy, and I quote, Long-term strategic competition with China is a principal priority for the United States, and I'm paraphrasing after this, requires a whole-of-government response. Uh, The bill requires the president to submit a whole-of-government strategy for dealing with China. This is a much steeper requirement than the annual DOD assessment of the PRC's military and strategic capabilities that has been in place since 2000. Um, So a couple follow-ons from this, from what you said. How does this mesh with President Trump's uh, policy toward China up until now. Does this also really equate to asking the interagency for a U.S. strategy for Asia, not just China? Because it's hard to to separate those two things. And also, do you guys think that congressional midterm results might change the the tenor of this uh, of this document going, you know, for next year when we look ahead to the twenty twenty um, NDAA? Maybe, Greg, if you if you want to weigh in to start.
3: Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, the I think. With the NDAA, especially the reporting requirements placed on the Pentagon, some of the the backstops, um, Korea among others, what the Congress is, is at least partially doing is um, putting out a clear statement that it expects more of, of the administration, in, in that it at least expects a more robust, coherent statement of, of US uh, ends and means and goals in, in Asia, one that has not really been forthcoming so far as, as this administration has been focused on Korea and trade issues. And, and broader issues like the Belt and Road Initiative and, and South China Sea, the longer-term challenges of China's rise, of Chinese revisionism, have been kicked down the road. The Pentagon has been doing a, a pretty good job of trying to to keep that front and center, and, and you saw that clearly in the national defense strategy, but the White House and state less so. And so part of what Congress is doing here is, is demanding um, clear statements, clear, clear calls for the American people to understand the challenge. The other thing I think this does is, you know, it establishes a base level of policy consistency from from administration to administration, and a lot of the language in the NDAA you see over and over. A lot of these concerns can be traced back to 2014, 15, 16 NDAA's. It, it sends a clear call to U.S. partners, U.S. competitors, that regardless of of who is in the White House, what party's in power, the sentiment of of the Congress is the same. That that you know, rising China and, and the challenge of meeting it. Is is one of the foremost, um, you know, concerns of, of the legislative branch in, in the 21st century.
1: And Taiwan is often an issue, for example, that is covered heavily in the NDAA uh, in a way that you don't necessarily see in other parts of government.
2: Yeah, the Taiwan piece of the NDAA uh, has a long history, and you know, it, 15 years ago, it was because of the vaunted Taiwan lobby, uh, especially the uh, FAPA, which is a, the, the Formosa America organization, would lobby to get uh, friends in Congress to put things in legislation that would show China that Taiwan had strong support in the U.S. And for members of the House in some districts, you know, Taiwanese Americans can be pretty important constituencies. And then ideologically, especially Republicans, um, ever since 1979, felt like Uh, the uh, Carter administration in normalizing relations with uh, China gave Taiwan a bum deal, hence the Taiwan Relations Act and so forth. So Congress has always had a pretty important role in uh, reminding the administration and the world how important Taiwan is to us for its values, for its economic power, for its geography, and for our historic friendship. Um, It's a little surprising how much Taiwan is in the NDAA this year because the team in place at defense state and NSC is the most pro Taiwan group of Asia hands we've had in a long time. And I suspect part of the reason you're seeing it is because the president himself uh, doesn't sing a very consistent song on Taiwan. Um, And so a lot of members of Congress and maybe some of the uh, team in the administration felt like there needed to be a clear statement of um, support coming from the Congress at a time when there may be questions about how committed the president is to Taiwan, because he's been, you know, very inconsistent in what he says about China policy all across the board. Um, the NDAA and the role of Congress is uh, should not be mistaken as a partisan food fight, though. I, You know, this current NDAA has the fingerprints of Jack Reed, the Democratic uh, minority uh, ranking member, and John McCain and others. Um, I think of all the issues we work on at CSIS, Asia strategy, Asia policy may be the most bipartisan. We host members of Congress from both parties and both chambers, and they tease each other, but they generally come together at a dinner or an event here, and you hear very similar concerns, similar themes. Um, The previous uh, NDAAs under the Obama administration also called for a strategy and pushed hard for a strategy. And President Obama... To his credit, uh, announced a rebalance or pivot to Asia and tried to get more resources, uh, mostly Pentagon resources, to the region. But he also spent a lot of time. But it was never really clear what the bottom line was, what the strategy was, Um, and what their take on China was. Were they trying to get a a a new cooperative partnership with China? Were they trying to counter China? Were they trying to contain China? And if you ask John Kerry or Ash Carter or Susan Rice or Tom Donilon, you got very different answers. So they definitely put Asia front and center, which was which was overdue. The Obama administration gets credit for that. But what was the overall theory of the case? What was the strategy? How did they think about China? Very inconsistent views. Some members of the administration, some were ready, like the Secretary of Defense, to say China is a challenge. Others were more hesitant to do it. Um, this administration, in its national security strategy and its national defense strategy, is not shy about saying, clearly, we are in an era of great power rivalry and a major competition with China. So there's nothing ambiguous about that. Uh, Kudos to the Trump administration for being so clear about it. The problem is the competition with China is not a purely military competition. Trade matters. And we've completely pulled ourselves out of the trade uh, diplomacy game with the Trump administration's unilateral withdrawal from TPP, which is, I'm sure, upsetting to many in the administration itself who are trying to work on Asia. Um, and uh, the State Department is woefully understaffed. There's no Assistant Secretary for East Asia, for example. Um, So on the diplomatic side, where are the tools? So in some ways, the criticism now uh, is the opposite of the Obama administration. It was, you're starting to put more tools in place for Asia, but what's the strategy? What's the theory of the case? What's your take on China? Where are we going with this? Well, the Trump team answered that. We're competing with China. Okay, where are the tools? The Defense Department's gotten the tools— pretty well in this uh, NDAA. And it's interesting that the Congress is saying that's not enough. If we're going to have a national security strategy and a defense strategy in Asia, we need to know what the rest of the tools look like. And I think that's why that's in there because, you know, if there's no trade policy, if we're underinvested in diplomacy right now, if we're if we're Squisham multilateralism, if we're fighting trade fights with some of our closest allies, you know, what what are the instruments of power in, in the book I published last year? plug, uh, by More Than Providence, which is a history of American grand strategy in Asia. One of the main conclusions is um, we need all our instruments of power. We need trade. We need our military, especially naval and air forces in that theater. Um, We need diplomacy, and we need um, a clear sense of our values and our commitments, and we need to be consistent about these things because that's what the region looks to for Ameri- from America, that kind of leadership, that kind of consistency. And I read the NDAA as, yes, we we think you're right in the national security strategy we're competing with China. We think you're putting in place a lot of the right defense policies and defense tools, but that's just one leg of a four-legged stool. We got to have values, trade, diplomacy. We need to um, have, as Craig Greg said, more consistency. We'll see how the administration responds to that. Um, I think a lot of People working on China and Asia in the, the administration would agree, but President Trump campaigned and won on a much more um, America first platform. That's not a great framework for strategy. Um, uh, but it's interesting that Congress is coming in, as they have in the past, and saying, get your act together. And they did it to Obama. Um, when I was in the Bush administration, we didn't get it so much. We got beaten up on Iraq and other stuff. Uh, and I was the senior Asia guy in the NSC, so I didn't mind that. Um, but the Congress has played that role, and it's helpful.
1: Greg, in terms of specifics within the, the context of the document, one of the areas that you focus on quite heavily is the South China Sea and um, freedom of navigation, the East China Sea and other areas uh, throughout Maritime uh, Asia and the Indo-Pacific. What are some of the things that stand out to you about the 2019 NDAA with respect to the uh, engagement on maritime issues in, in Asia?
3: Well, basically, the entire Asia section of of the NDA, everything that's said about Asia, ultimately applies to the South China Sea and then competition over infrastructure investment, Belt and Road Initiative. You know, the effort to to have a more robust Indo-Pacific strategy, to demand policy reviews from from uh, DOD and State, all of that is going to feed into this. And it is important. I think it helps get back to the one thing that clearly, despite what contractors might, might rightfully say about the pivot and, or the rebounds, the one thing that it got right was that it situated China policy within a broader Asia policy, which is absolutely necessary. You can't have a China policy that doesn't put allies and partners front and center. Specifically on the South China Sea, there are three things that jumped out to me in the NDA. One of them is that the Congress, uh, as, as Mike already alluded to, basically made permanent the disinvitation of China from the rim of the Pacific exercises. It... it what the NDA does is, is say that China can't be reinvited to RIMPAC until it, it basically pulls back from the Spratleys entirely, removes all military equipment and, and uh, ends all reclamation. And, and the language isn't even clearly just on the Spratlys. One could read the language to apply to the parasols as well, which the Chinese have had all of them for over 40 years now and, and a lot of them for 60 years. So obviously that's not going to happen. The only way that... that China's coming back to RIMPAC as if the Secretary of Defense certifies to Congress that it's in the national interest and therefore it needs an exemption from these. The second thing is the renewal of what was the Southeast Asian Maritime Security Initiative, which was the five-year, $450 million package of mainly maritime domain awareness and capacity building support for Southeast Asian partners under the Obama administration. That was set to uh, run out, I think, in 2020. It's now been renewed for another five years. it's it's helpful. It's been renamed the Indo-Pacific Maritime Security Strategy, so it, it helps the current administration, you know, kind of rebrand and say this isn't an Obama-era initiative. It expands the list of countries to include India, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, I believe. But they're all, as I read at least, kinda of put into the tier two category with Singapore and Thailand, mainly focused on training. The big money is still clearly headed toward the South China Sea claimants, and that's important. You cannot overstate just how ill-equipped some of these littoral states, especially the Philippines, are, just to maintain some idea of what's going on in their waters. To you know have an idea when the Chinese build a new island or put out a new uh, set of, of fighter jets or whatever, and so that is important. The third thing is uh, a new reporting requirement. The NDA mandates that any time China engages in new uh, reclamation or militarization or the issuance of a new claim which could be, you know, issuance of straight baselines or an ADIS, an Air Defense Identification Zone, if any of those things happen in the South China Sea, the Pentagon is to brief committees, relevant committees in Congress, and issue a public report. And that report is to include at least one, if not more, photos, which is, is very specific. And clearly what Congress is getting at is they know that in the classified world, people can be putting out photos of Chinese military deployments or Chinese island building a lot quicker than those of us at AMTI or elsewhere in the public sector can. And can do a better job of naming and shaming and building public pressure. The key here is going to be implementation. Of course, the, the legislation allows the secretary to uh, say that that these public disclosures, at least, would be um, damaging to U.S. national security. Obviously, you don't want to, to issue any anything that could undermine um, methods and means of, of data collection. And so we'll we'll see how much you know. It's entirely in the Pentagon's lap, basically, how much of this they. Actually, want to make public, and how much they want to keep classified and just brief to committees.
1: So, Mike, one topic that I think is interesting from uh, those of us who are tracking these issues is how has Congress's role with respect to Asia policy played out uh, over the history of our of our country? Are there other situations where Congress has played an important or a leading or a pushing role toward the executive branch on specific issues that we may not think about or that were actually
2: quite crucial? So Congress actually has ha- has a long history of um, influencing Asia policy or Asia strategy, sometimes helpfully, sometimes not. Uh, not so helpful examples include the um, legislation in the nineteen thirties tying FDR's hands when it came to lend-lease and aid for um, not only um, allies in Europe but but also um, China uh, under duress from in the Ch- Japanese invasion, or in the nineteen eighties trade legislation that really. Um, rattled U.S. alliances with Japan and Korea over trade. But there are probably more examples where um, a few wise heads in Congress have weighed in. And it goes back to, you know, debates in the 1830s and 40s with people like John Quincy Adams um, uh, about coaling stations and all of the push that led to um, Perry's opening of Japan and our whole maritime strategy. A lot of that was generated in congressional hearings Um, in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, Um, or, you know, our former chairman Sam Nunn's uncle um, was a congressman from uh, uh, Carl Vinson from landlocked uh, uh, Georgia, a district in landlocked Georgia. And in the the 1930s, he convinced FDR to build up the Navy because he was worried about Japan. Huge, Uh, uh, really created the Navy that eventually held the line at, at Midway and turned around the war. Um, the buildups pushed by um, uh, Congressman uh, Carl Vinson. Um, and in the end of the Cold War, um, there were these reports called East Asia Strategic Report that said we're not going to go below 100,000 troops in the Asia-Pacific region and laid out our strategy in the 90s. That was, uh, those reports were initiated by members of Congress talking to Secretary of Defense Cheney Uh, later Secretary of Defense Bill Perry and the Clinton administration saying, you need to lay out your strategy, Pentagon, because there's going to be, these were friends of the Pentagon and friends of a forward presence in Asia on the Senate and House Armed Services Committee saying, we're going to get a lot of pressure after the Cold War to pull out of Korea, maybe even pull out of Japan, pull out of the Philippines. What's your strategy? And in the 1990s, the Pentagon welcomed that because they wanted to be able to lay it all out and make the case for forward presence. And then, you know, uh, Greg Greg gave the example of the Obama administration, which got pushed by especially the Senate Armed Services Committee to explain what was going on in the South China Sea. And they used the imagery and analysis that Greg produced in AMTI um, uh, to push the administration to come up with a strategy uh, to um, counter Chinese uh, militarization in the South China Sea. So um, Congress has done this, and um, often very helpfully, um, our allies talk to Congress all the time. Um, so does the Pentagon. So the Congress isn't always pushing against a closed door with the Pentagon and this stuff. It's, always, it's often pushing the Pentagon to clarify strategy towards Asia um, that maybe is a little hard for them to do because they're preoccupied with the Middle East or there's no consensus with the State Department. I'd say more often than not in the last 20, 30 years, Congress has weighed in on Asia policy and Asia strategy in ways that are really helpful and that are bipartisan. And you talk to the Japanese embassy, the Australian embassy, Korean embassy, they know there are certain members of Congress who care about Asia, who pay attention, who will, who will weigh in in legislation like the NDAA to discipline the administration, keep us focused. And that's why John McCain is such a huge loss, because he was by far the most powerful and important. We had Danny Noe from... Hawaii, and we had Stevens from Alaska. Those two were really important in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, and then it was John McCain. So with John McCain gone, a big question, Asia hands in the government, uh, allies like Japan, Australia are asking is, who's gonna step up, who's gonna do that? We have younger first, second term members like Joni Ernst, Dan Sullivan, um, Cory Gardner on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee side. But the most senior members of Congress right now are not Asia hands. For the first time in a while. So these, these this younger generation is good. Um, they're going to have to really step up. They're really going to have to step up because Congress's role has been very, very important. Greg
1: Poling, Mike Green, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks.
0: That's our show. Special thanks to Dr. Michael Green and Greg Poling for their insights and anecdotes. You can find links to the FY 2019 NDAA and Dr. Green's book, By More Than Providence, in the show notes for this episode if you're keen to learn more. On Kajit Asia, you can find new written analysis of key pending reform challenges facing the Indian government led by Prime Minister Narendra Modi. The audio for this podcast was edited by Ribka Gemilongsari. This podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, or email on csis.org. Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site to see completely overhauled imagery and interface for our world-renowned island tracker. Also, be sure to listen to our podcast series China Power with Bonnie Glazer for interviews and analysis on all things related to China's rise. I'm Liza Keller. Thanks for listening.